Welcome to the Behind the Bits podcast. Your host, Scott Curtis, wants to learn everything he can about stand-up comedy and take you along for the ride. Scott and his guests talk serious about comedy in every episode. Behind the Bits will uncover knowledge from different perspectives on subjects such as writing and performing stand-up comedy, as well as booking shows and the comedy life. If you're thinking about becoming a stand-up comic, already in the comic game, or a comedy nerd, Behind the Bits is the show for you. Now, let's get Behind the Bits. Hey, B2B buddies, before we get started here, I want to relay an experience I had with my car. As you know, I live in Huntsville, Alabama now, and I know a lot of folks from Huntsville listen to the podcast because my stats tell me so. Long story short, my car needed an engine, and I took it to a gentleman who said he could do it. Turns out he couldn't do it, so I had to take it to somebody else. I found Christian Brothers Automotive after looking around all over the place for somebody who could actually replace an engine. Boy, did they take good care of me. They communicated during the whole process. They worked with my extended warranty company, which is not a bad company, but there's a lot of red tape involved. And I know that took some time on the phone for them. They had, my car's a Ford, and they had a uh, Ford master mechanic do the work and also found out I needed uh, back brakes. He took care of that. I just want to say I drove out with a car that felt like a new car. Jeff Cole, who's the owner there, took some time to talk to me to make sure that I was taken care of all right and I was taken care of all right. And the nice thing with this is I get a 36,000 mile or 36 month warranty, whichever comes last. So that means if I drive 36,000 miles this year, I still got two years left on my warranty. Or if I take five years to drive 36,000 miles, it's still under warranty. Pretty good deal. I've never seen that from a mechanic shop before. They took great care of me. If you live in Huntsville and you need your car repaired in any way, I highly recommend Christian Brothers Automotive in Hampton Cove. Soon to have a location here in South Huntsville over by the boot. So keep your eye out for that. Christian Brothers Automotive, thank you for doing a great job. All right, BTB buddies, we've got Stephen Weiner on the podcast today. Stephen Weiner is a comedy writer that started out at National Lampoon and went on to be one of the first writers for Late Night with David Letterman. He went on to work with Robert Klein, Dick Van Dyke, and write for the new Mickey Mouse Club that came out in the 90s. Stephen currently writes some great articles about classic comedy films for the Criterion Collection. Make sure you check out that link in the show notes. It was a great time talking to Steve about writing for different folks and different audiences. And it was really cool that he found Calvert DeForest, who is better known as Larry Bud Melman, before he was on Late Night. This is a really good episode. Give it a listen. Steven, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Let me give you a couple of quick corrections right off the bat. Okay. Uh, it was Showtime, not HBO, and it's Calvert DeForest, not Calvin DeForest. Otherwise... Very, very good. Thank you. I appreciate that. And now try not to be distracted by your enormous head. Yeah. <laughs> There's one thing that seems to be a common theme over a lot of the folks who did writing, especially for Letterman, in that there ain't shit on the internet about you. <laughs> 
or anywhere else. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I, I did I did find a couple clips uh, yeah. where um, you you were on the show. One of them was mm -hmm. um, stupid writer tricks, um, and yeah. and when I had laryngitis. Yeah. <laughs> And, and you and Carl were basically just uh, sucking up to Dave. That was your whole trick. And then you did. Well, that was a joke. Yeah. yeah, you did get to do a little spot that uh, brought forth some of the clips from uh, King of the. We did a couple of them. Yeah. yeah, I don't know if all of them up there, but but we did it. We did a bunch of them actually, and we made new. We got to make new clips for the specifically for the show. I don't know. Maybe we should go a little background on the film. I don't know what what order you want to do. Yeah, I, I and, and that order. because did that um, kind of get you in the uh, front door to work with Dave? Oh, it, def it definitely did. Yeah, the story the story was. I mean, we had written for the, a little bit for the National Lampoon, but that would have been some years before. Uh, we had made this short. We made this short film that it was originally my idea that I brought to Carl, who I'd been working with for some years for this parody documentary about the world's cheapest movie studio of the 40s and 50s, which was going to be called Vespucci. And the movie was called King of the Z's, which uh, I don't like the term mockumentary. I always call it, just called it parody documentaries. Uh, and so, of course, we had to make our, our own contemporary interview footage and also make our own black and white film clips from the actual movies. We had worked with Calfred DeForest had actually come for an earlier film that Carl and I had made it in. Uh, and, uh, there really wasn't a part for him in that, but he, he stuck in both of our back of both of our minds. And uh, certainly, you know, when we were thinking of well, what kind of, I was thinking what kind of actors you would have at a studio that couldn't afford to pay people. Calvert sort of leapt to the fore. In any case, we made the movie and it played in an early uh, Telluride festival, film festival, and uh, it got picked up for Showtime and it ran for two years on Showtime as an interstitial, uh, you know, between features. I actually never got to see it because in fact, in those days, Showtime was only in the upper was the upper half of Manhattan and HBO was below 86 Street where I live. And so I never actually got to see it on the air. Uh, Stu Smiley, who worked for the Rosa Joffe office in those days, did see it on the air and, and he liked it. He, he contacted he reached out and contacted me and he said, you know, I'd love to work with you guys. Is that something you're, that really appeals to you? I had been a big fan of Dave's morning show uh, and I knew that the show was coming up. I don't I don't think it had particularly crossed his mind to bring it directly to him because I brought it up. He said, I said, do you think there's any chance that maybe David, you know, would look at it and maybe consider us for the show? He says, oh, he said, I didn't, hadn't thought of that. Let me, let me bring it to them and see what happens. Turns out that David and Merrill did see the film and they liked it and they brought us in for an interview and eventually wound up in our getting the job. That's, that, that's a, that's a great story. And so I've read a lot about the show and, uh, you, you come up in, uh, some of the books and one of the things that seems to be a common theme on the Letterman show is that the writing experience was unlike almost every other show. And it was very insular, um, instead of, uh, collaborative um and it was almost like a nine to five job where you uh punched in wrote your jokes and uh punched out uh and that's a statement and the question is dave is a um always always has been um a, a very private person and one of the things that's important when you write somebody's voice is to understand their sensibilities and understand what they think is funny. My question is, is how were you able to write in a situation where the host is 
kind of standoffish and uh, doesn't necessarily, you don't necessarily know what he wants. Well, I don't think that, I think there are a couple of questions that in, let me break that into a couple of pieces. And if I forget one, come back to it. Um, first of all, you're never writing for a person, for a comedian's private self. Mm-hmm. You're writing for their public self. Mm-hmm. The, 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 the way Dave presented himself on the air is what you're writing for. Right. So the, I had already seen him on, you know, regularly on the morning show. So I had a bit, I got a sense of what the rhythm of his, his style was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think the rest of us all picked it up pretty quickly. So it wasn't so much getting to know Dave personally as it was once you get to know his, his comedy persona, his on-air personality, that's what you write for. Mm-hmm. I, I, I mean, I haven't written with that for that many distinctive comedians, but basically that's always the case. Uh, in Robert Klein's case, I think that the, the dis, there was less distance between their public, his public and private persona, but still there was a rhythm to Robert's performance, and you have to get that rhythm rather than this private conversation. So you're always speaking, writing for a specific voice, and the voice is not the person, it's their persona. Mm-hmm. I think that, that's the best way I can put it. Now, when you, when you were writing, did, did the bits, jokes, everything that you put together, did that go to Merrill and then go to Dave, or how did that yeah. work? That's how it worked. I mean, basically, there are several ways of, of, of kind of bits that you would come up with. Some would be bits you generate yourself. You present them to Meryl, see if she likes. Another would be what, you know, what you might call that we, we call the refillables, which is bits that come back on a regular basis, mm-hmm. whether it's viewer, viewer mail or, or, whack, or the new products, which we call in the office the wacky pop bit and things like that. Uh, those, are, those are always going to come back again and again. So in that case, we would all turn in pages, you know, 10 jokes or so from for a particular bit. Uh, if it was a prop thing or we'd have like 10 prop ideas. Uh, viewer mail was a little different. You know, we'd be getting the mail, the, the, idea, the ones that Meryl thought had promise and she would give us those a, a couple of days before. And we would write jokes to those that was a struckers. Mm-hmm. And the, but then everybody was sent to return up. In, in those cases, we would all be turning out in material for the same overall bits. Mm-hmm. In other words, everybody would turn in ideas for viewer mail. Everybody returned in for new products, whatever. And then Meryl would pick the ones she liked best, and then she would take those to Dave, and Dave would pick the ones he liked best. Mm-hmm. And that's how it worked out. Cool. Dave really liked words. And yeah. he, he liked silly words. He liked, uh, you know, words that you don't hear every day. He, he liked right. that type of stuff. How did you key in and be able to use that to get some of your bits on, on the um, show? I don't know so much keyed in. I, I always love verbal, that, that kind of thing myself. Mm-hmm. I love, I, I love the way he used words and I love the kind of jokes that he did on his own. So the, the, you know, the trick is to write in that voice and I can't, can't really explain a particular way you go about it. You just have to learn, sort of get that voice. The, the thing is I found that when I was working for any comedian with a strong voice, whether it was Dave or Robert or whoever, they would be so much in my head, so present in my head that I would find myself talking in their rhythms when I was not there. Yeah. I'd be talking their rhythms to people I knew, you know, uh, sometimes and get, get you into trouble because I remember one time I was actually around Dave when, when, I, and I wound up actually deadly saying something in his kind of rhythm. And I saw the look in his face and said, okay, I remember doing that again. On the other <laughs> hand, there's a story, uh, there's a Robert Klein story that I, I, and I think I told on Mike's, so I don't know if you want to hear it again, but it's very indicative of how that works. I, you know, when, when I was working in Robert's case, I had been a fan of his literally for at that point for, since this, you know, he first started, I saw his first Carson appearance. Mm-hmm. Well, I've been a huge fan for a de- you know a decade, a couple of decades, or at that point, or almost a couple of decades. 
I guess, I guess it was probably, probably under two decades, but whatever. I've already been a big fan. And so that voice was in my, my head easily. But and plus, there's a certain Jewish comedy rhythm that I that I was sort of born into. You know, it's it's that just does happen. So I I would find myself talking like Robert, almost accidentally in a lot of places. And Robert, you know, would hear that and say, "I love that you do. Nobody does me." And he'd say, "You know, like that." And there one day, again, I wasn't trying to do an impression, and I don't really do vocal impressions. I mm -hmm. can sort of do people's rhythms. One day we were do we started the first thing I did for for him that Carl and I did was a these like New York remote pieces for the bloopers and practical jokes show, which were sort of Dave's version, Robert's version of what Dave did, mm -hmm. except it was very much Robert. It was really Robert's voice is very different ultimately. Um, and he would do the narration for them. And we'd be sitting in the, in the room while he was recording the narration. And, and at one point um, he came out of the recording booth and he really didn't like how, what he'd been doing. And he turned to me and said, I can't stand it. I'm starting to sound like little Thomas, <laughs> little Thomas that for those who don't know was, uh, a TV and also film guy who did narrations for documentaries and for travelogues. He did the first Cinerama movie. He was yeah. a narrator, things like that. So he, he said that and they turned to me and said, Winder, how would I say this line? And I thought about it for a second. I don't remember the line. I wish I did, but the rhythm was something like, <laughs> like that. Yeah, uh -huh. and so I did that. And he said, yeah, that sounds like me. And he's walking back to the booth and I hear him, <laughs> he's going. And I, I literally, I'm sitting there thinking, Robert Klein is doing an impression of me, doing an impression of him. This is literally the best job on the planet. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it doesn't get any better than that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's that's how it works. I mean, it, for me, it was getting the voice in my head. And like I said, when, once they're in my head, it was harder to get it out than it was to get it in. Mm -hmm. So let's think about, I'm going to stay with Dave for just a couple more mm -hmm. minutes. Let's think about going into work and knowing that you need to come up with some material. What kind of headspace do you need to get into? And what types of exercises do you do in order to put out the material that you put out? I don't, I can't, I don't think there's any th terms of headspace. Everybody is different. I remember I noticed more, even more on the Disney show that because it was collaborative, more collaborative than on Letterman show, which is that I, I tend to be, when I'm writing for the television shows, I get in on my mo my greatest energies in the morning. Mm -hmm. It starts to fade over the day. Mm -hmm. On the Disney show, and I, don't, maybe, I think it was true on the Letterman show too for a lot of the other writers, but it wasn't as relevant because we in Letterman were writing at our own pace. But but on, on a lot of the shows, most of the, the writers are li better later in the day. Mm -hmm. And by the end of the day, I'm sort of done. You know, I'm sort of out of it already. Mm -hmm. So for me, it was trickier on the on the Disney show to find a place where we could all where we'd get our both both of ourselves in sync. Letterman, it wasn't a problem because Carl, Carl worked well in the morning. We'd sit down and we'd say, you know, we'd get the assignment or whatever we had to do that day. And then I, I don't think there's a, a, any tricks to it. I think it's the it's a job like anything else. You know, you, you have to deliver. Mm -hmm. So I don't have any particular tricks or anything. I just look at the thing, think about it, talk about it. The, the nice thing about working with a partner is that you get throw things back and forth. Yeah, You're writing by yourself. You only, you're sort of stuck with yourself. You have to talk yourself into being funny. Mm -hmm. But you you know when you're when you're trying to make your partner laugh or vice versa that helps I think that can help. Mm -hmm. uh, but that's everybody is different. And I've written by myself too, and I've been able to get you know get away with it. Right. So it's like anything else. So I don't. I wish there were tricks I could tell you, but I don't. And I think everybody has a different approach. Mm -hmm. You know, I and I think it's just a question of realizing you know that there there not a ton of nine to five jobs in in comedy, but you know when you work on a show a show that works four or five days a week, and I work with you know, two low, two of those, 
you don't have the option of, of having to wait wait around for a trick. You have to go in and do the job. Yeah. So it's just a job, and you, you well, it's you, a, have, it's a, it, you have tasks, and you have to figure yeah. out how to do them. Yeah, I mean, it's it's that that literally is you know that's the job. I mean, that's what they're paying you for. You know, I, I know I, I I even remember very early we before the actual show went on, we had, there was a a piece that we were all working on for Dave to do for the remotes to pitch the show. Mm -hmm. And I remember we were all standing around at one point. At one point, they were already there. Dave wasn't happy with the joke. And uh, and uh, we were all standing around trying to figure out something. And Jerry Mulligan, who had worked on the morning show and had known Dave forever, says, well, you know, this is the job, guys. <laughs> you know, you got to come up with jokes. So we tried. Yeah, I don't know how it worked out, but we tried. And that, that was it. And after a certain point, I hope hopefully you're able to do it. Uh, if you aren't, you probably won't be there long. Yeah. Yeah. So let's back up and uh, find out uh, when you decided that comedy writing was going to be your vocation. I always loved comedy since I was very little. Mm -hmm. I and I loved all comedy. I loved what was contemporary. Mm -hmm. uh, and I loved the older stuff. You know, I, I always point out to people that when I was a kid, kids television in the afternoon in a lot of cities, certainly in New York City, You'd be watching. It, there were, you know, contemporary hosts of these shows, but you'd be watching Laurel and Hardy, mm -hmm. Abbott and Costello, Three Stooges, Warner Brothers cartoons, you know, Little Rascals, things like that. So I was getting a grounding in comedy from the '30s, just because that's what was on the air. And I loved all of it. You know, I loved the old stuff, the new stuff. Um, I hadn't. I originally, when I was really little, the first thing I wanted to do was to make cartoons. Specifically, I wanted to make Warner Brother cartoons. Mm -hmm. Particularly, specifically, I wanted to. I realized I wanted to make Chuck Jones cartoons. Mm -hmm. uh, and I found out that uh, Chuck Jones was already making those, so there probably wasn't much market for, for me to do that. Um, and then I sort of thought, like a lot of kids, kids, I said I wanted to be a comedian, performer. And then I realized at some point I didn't have any real talent for that. Mm -hmm. So my father was a writer. He was been a professional writer all his life. He was a playwright and a television writer. He wrote dr drama, though. He didn't write comedy. But for me, growing out up at a writer's house, the, the, the notion of, the, of a writer writing being a job that one did was something that I could attach to. Mm -hmm. And it, it pretty, became pretty obvious to me by later in high school that that was what I was going to make a, a stab at. Yeah. And in fact, I met Carl in high school and we actually started writing together. I was, he was about a year behind me. So we had, our first spec scripts were written when I was in college and he was in, still in high school. We would send drafts back and forth to each other. Uh -huh. So that's really how we started. Yeah. So you, you and Carl did quite a bit together i mean every time every time you appeared on the show you were together so you were you're you were much kind of a team mm -hmm. as as far as that's concerned when this all culminated in king of the z's and you know just from the clips i've seen mm -hmm. i just i fall in love with that and i hope i can find it somehow well, I it's I hope it'll be back online. It was on for a long time up on on YouTube, uh -huh. and then it went away. So at the moment, I'm actually working uh, to try to get it back on YouTube. Uh -huh. uh, so you should have should have be able to see it. I hope at some point. The Maybe actor that you later. had playing Sherlock Holmes when you're illustrating the fact mm. that they were filming several different movies on the same sound sound stage, mm -hmm. when he got so exasperated at the end mm -hmm. and threw his hat, it was just it, for for me it was a magical moment. And uh, those guys are good. They were all all the cast we had were all, all you know actors in the you know neighborhood actors. People who went out for those jobs. Yeah, we were luckily able to get them all back when we did the new clips for Letterman. I think I think everybody was in pretty much who was in the original, which in which was in seventy eight. Uh 
uh-huh. uh, we're able, we came, we brought them back in, uh, in, uh, 82 when we did the new clips for the show. So, uh, th- you'll see them all there again, you know, in the, in the new clips. Yeah. Um, but, it, but the, you know, it, it, we were very lucky and the actor we had, now you don't see him because they only use the actual clips from the, the black and white clips, but in the actual film, we have the interviews with the, with, uh, the, the owner and the, the manager of the studio. And he was very good. And we have a lot of other good people. In those clips too. Uh-huh. Uh, I'm even in it for half a second, and I'm terrible, but I, but I can't do anything about that because I I had to leave mo- a little bit of my thing in because I like the joke that led into me. Uh-huh. But uh, I cut out most of my performance because, as I said, and now realized again, I was not a professional entertainer. I was a writer. <laughs> I had a uh, while you were talking, I had a squirrel pop in my head, and I had to write it down so I didn't forget it. Do you consume any of the uh, current comedy uh, that's going on? Any of the shows? Any of the yeah, stand-up? Yeah, some, but I don't keep. I don't say that I keep up. Uh-huh. So very often when they ask people, their entire comedians, entire things have just gone by me. Right. And but I'll find some, and you know, I don't know if they're necessarily the best, but they're the ones that somehow got on my radar. Right. Um, and I think there's some really good stuff out there. You know, I do watch occasionally. I do watch. Uh, Colbert and I do watch the uh, uh, Trevor Noah and I um, I don't watch a lot of t- other I don't watch any other talk shows particularly mm-hmm. I don't I'm, I watch I said I watch Colbert I don't keep up I don't watch uh, uh, any of the Jimmys mm-hmm. um, uh, I watch some com- you know sitcoms I watch some sh- other kind of comedy shows but it's it's you know again you could ask me somebody I mean. I miss entire people. I, I managed to miss the entire career of Bill Hicks when he was on. Yeah. When he when he died, it was like, oh, this was the greatest media. I said, it was Bill Hicks. I mean, I just it just literally had gone right by. Yeah. Because I don't, I never kept up with you know when when I left the Letterman show. This is true of anything. I think a lot of people who when when you work on a show and you leave the show, whatever, whether it's a good reason or a bad reason, it's hard to look at it again because there are either of two things are going to go through your head. Either it's going to be very good and you'll be sorry you're not there, mm-hmm. or it's going to be not good and you'll be sorry you're not there for a different reason. Yeah. So there's nothing gained by watching the show. So I didn't watch the Letterman show after I left that. I didn't watch the Mouse Club after I left that. So a lot of the comedians who broke on the Letterman show during those days were people I just didn't see. Uh-huh. And it's funny. Your sensibility, as far as that's concerned, is so much like mine. We're, we're outliers. And mm-hmm. we... We like what we like, and right. we're not going to be sucked into trends, and uh, no. we're we're just going to do what we do. And you know, I I don't get into anything that stand-ups get into. They all like to play Dungeons and Dragons, and they love comic books and Marvel movies. We didn't have Dungeons and Dragons in my day, young man. Yeah. <laughs> I was a what. If we had a dungeon and dragon, we had to build a dungeon and, and try to make a, somebody dress like a dragon. You couldn't just <laughs> do this stuff. So, yes. in, in getting no, back to the, in getting back to the question of the things that you see that you like, do you see anything that you would say is new, or do you think that comedy is pretty much what it was? in the twenties and has just been revamped and modernized. Well, every, everything comes in waves, but I see a lot of stuff that I, I, I think a lot of what I'm finding that really is impressing me now are people who, who can sort of blend comedy with very personal and very emotional kind of material so that you can take something. I mean, I, I, I loved, um, Oh my God, I'm going to go up on the name. Uh, um, I will come back to this. The, the 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 wonderful Brit, British woman, uh, help me, help me, help me. You know, um, 
It's going to, it's going out of my head. Um, it's not Julia Child, is it? No, 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 no. The, 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 um, well, I'll come back to it. Okay. But, but there, there are people who are doing shows now. I'm actually, well, if I, if I knew her, I can't, I don't, can't remember her name right now. Um, but, but there are shows, there are shows of comedy shows that I see now that are, you would almost not, think, you almost don't quite know how to classify them. They're not quite comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, um, Fleabag, thank you. For, uh, Fleabag oh, is the show yeah, I was trying right. to think of. Yeah. You know, a show like Fleabag, she's amazing. And, you know, you, I've seen people say, well, this is not, I've, I've seen people write online who are comedy writers saying, I don't consider this a comedy. Well, actually, it's really funny, but it's very bleak. Mm-hmm. And, but it's it's real and it's human, and that's something that I think there were versions things like that in the past, but but I think they're better now. I mm-hmm. think there there's more range, more ability to sort of draw outside the lines, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. You know, if yeah. you're doing a, a a show for you, if you're doing a show for um, for network television, you could not have done what she did in Fleabag. Um, and you know, even now, now you see people are imitating that show and some of them are good and some are not so good. Anytime you do something that's that groundbreaking, mm-hmm. you're going to get a lot of versions of it. But, you know, I see stuff now. There are things I've seen people say, uh, you know, when, uh, uh, the, I'm going to have a lot of trouble with names say this is dealing with old people. Uh, we Live in the Shadows, is that the name of the show? Um, oh, what We Do in the Shadows. What We Do in the Shadows, yeah. thank you. That's a very funny show, uh-huh. but I got I got into a, a dispute with somebody when when I said to him, "It's really not that different from the monsters in the Adams family, because uh-huh. the the basic crust the the basic baseline of that mm-hmm. is the same. The jokes are different, and there were jokes they couldn't have done on either of those shows. Mm-hmm. But I don't see the framework, the basic setup as being that different. Mm-hmm. You know, it's just things come around again, comes yeah. in cycles, and you could do uh, the, that. You know what we do in the shadows." Uh, I got the title wrong again, I'm sure. But we, you could do that show, you know, that, in a different way now. But the basic, the fundamentals are not that different. Now, I don't, that, that's not to meant to be a criticism in any way. That's right. not to say it's not a really good show. Yeah. But, you know, I, I, I love old British sitcoms, for example. And I, and I went back and I've been w- watching Steptoe and Son, oh, okay. which was the original show that Sanford and Son is based on. If you see Steptoe and Son, it's so different from what Sanford and Son became. Steptoe and Son was about two guys who really were at the end of their, were sort of stuck with each other. Uh-huh. It was kind of tragic. And it's very dark. And uh, you couldn't have done, they couldn't have done that in, in when, when, when Sanford and Son was done here to that degree. Mm. But I look at Steptoe and Son and I see more of a link between Step, Steptoe and Son and Fleabag than I do between Steptoe and Son and Sanford and Son. Steptoe and Son is 40 years, is almost 60 years old now mm-hmm. when it started, started in 65 uh, and continued into the 70s. Um, so things come around again. There are different versions. And a lot of it has to do with what the market will take. Uh, Steptoe and Son was an outlier in British TV in their time. They had a lot of goofy, weird, wacky shows like typical network shows in America. Mm -hmm. But they got that on the air and they managed to make it work. I don't think that could have happened in the 60s in in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, But now it can. Yeah. You know, um, you can look at at, uh, the the, uh, shows that, that use the, I mean, everybody uses the documentary form now, whether it's Modern Family or Abbott Elementary or all those. Now it's, you know, The Office, whatever. Mm. They all become sort of, the formats become sort of hardened like rock. But on the other hand, I think Abbott Elementary uses it, even though the rhythms are the same mm. as The Office or the other shows, what they're doing with it and how they're, the, the kind of material they're dealing seems very fresh to me. So that show, which in one way is very typically, stereotypically structured to a standard 
you know, documentary format with, you know, and somebody said, oh, I, they always look at the camera with that little look like they do in the office. Yeah, they do that. Mm. But, the, but the baseline of the material is very different. They're mm. talking about different environments. And I've never seen it, the school format presented in quite that way. Right. So you can take an old format and do fresh things with it too. Yeah. Are, are you able to enjoy watching television uh, knowing that you're a writer and mm -hmm. you've, you've, you've written for TV? Are you able to remove yourself from the part where you're dissecting every line and the tropes and all that kind of stuff? Um, you know, I always remember my father saying to me, he had a hard time watching movies because he worked in studios and he saw how they were made. And every time he went to theater and saw a movie, you'd imagine imaginary clapperboard before each cut. Yeah. Right. So it's a different take each time in his head. The closer it is to material that I used to write, the harder it is for me to watch. Yeah. So, you know, when I watch Stephen Colbert's show, I'm, I, my favorite part to watch are the interviews rather than the, the monologues and things like that. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying he doesn't do the models really well, but, but, you know, I hear those, you know, the gears shifting of how mm -hmm. a joke like that is written. Um, but you know, I, I haven't written, I, I studied other formats, but I've not, haven't written them. So I don't have as much of a feeling about that, but it's true. I do feel like I can only watch the stuff that I think is really, really good. Yeah. And if it's a little less than good, I tend to burn out on it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, if I, if I see something and there's a certain amount of repetition and the repetition kind of gets to me. Yeah, I do. But, you know, there's a lot of ways of looking at it. You, people could say, well, you're just jealous because they're, you know, whatever, like, you're, you know, you're not working right now. Well, maybe that, there may be part of that true. That's true, too. I, you know, I, I, I have to be brutally honest about that. But I would like to think that, you know, I'm pretty good at stuff and that if I see something that I don't think is funny, it's not because I'm jealous, it's because I don't think it's funny. Right, right. And I'd like to think. And it really makes you appreciate the good stuff. And uh, I really do. And I, I, I know some people in this business who I've met who I find it very hard to appreciate any comedy other than their own. Mm -hmm. uh, and I find that a really sad, that makes me really sad. Yeah. Because it's sort of, the question is, why did you get into the business in the first place? Most people get into comedy because they loved something mm -hmm. in comedy. And it, you never know what it's going to be. You know, I mean, uh, um, I had, you know, Carl and I both had a very wide net in terms of the comedy we love. But I met, I met people, you know, people, some of the, the guys on the Letterman show, George Meyer was about as funny a human being as I've ever met in the world. George, you know, if asked, well, what was the thing that really, he really loved? He said, get smart. Mm. And yeah. then I tried to get others out of him and it was very hard to find others that he loved as much. Yeah. But you know, get, if get smart did the trick and got him to this point to be what he was. I think most people who, who do comedy are, are basically funny. Mm -hmm. And I think that, that if they, uh, the paths they take into the business are not always the same. Mm -hmm. The fact that I was, I was a, a, a lover of comedy and still am. And I still, you know, I write for, I write for Criterion. I have some on my t-shirt, mm -hmm. the Criterion collection. I've been writing for the last 10 years. I've been writing film essays about film comedy, classical comedy for about 10 years, because I always, this is stuff I'm writing about stuff. I always loved anyway. Yeah. So I can sort of step away from the, the writer comedy writer gig and examine it like a, from the outside. Uh -huh. And, you know, the way I was when I first saw, you know, Harold Lloyd or, or Buster Keaton or all these people when I just loved them. Mm -hmm. And now I could sort of look back and try to figure out why, you know, and try to examine it and try to write about it. And I'd like to think I'd bring a little bit of, you know, I, when I when they first asked me to write for them, which I mean, the first thing I wrote for Criterion, I mean, I'm jumping all around, I apologize. No, that's great. But the first thing I, that I wrote for them was actually a memoir about my father's relationship with the 
friendship with the, the author of Anatomy of the Anatomy of a Murder, mm -hmm. and they, they asked me something, and that was very much a memoir piece. They asked me to write more, and then I looked uh, and I said, "Well, I, you know, they have so many good writers at Criterion who can write about all kinds of things. The one thing maybe I have an edge on is to be able to write about comedy because not only do I love it, I also have done it. Mm -hmm. So maybe I could bring something fresh to the table. So that's why I, I've sort of kept in that lane for them, and uh, and I, I love doing that. But you know, again, you'll meet a lot of comedy writers who don't know anything about other comedy." We're just funny and whatever, whatever takes you to the job is what takes it, what takes you there. Right. Right. Can you talk a little bit about uh, working with Dick Van Dyke on the uh, Nick at night show? Well, that was literally, you know, if you're, when you're a little, I mean, it's, that was so little when I first, that when that show was first on the air, I still remember the Dick Van Dyke show. My father had heard about the show and uh, he said, he figured you ought to try to watch it. And he, he thought, well, this sounds like something Steve would like. And he said to me, you want to come and watch this with me? And I watched, I, it was a second season episode. If you're an expert, you'll know it's the one about the flashback episode where, where Rob is trying to get married to, to, to Laura, but things keep going wrong. And it's a fantastic episode. I couldn't start with a better episode. Um, and it, it also plays a little bit like a, like a Laurel and Hardy comedy. Mm -hmm. um, it didn't take long for me to find out that, that Dick Van Dyke also loved Laurel and Hardy yeah. and, and actually knew Stan and all of that. So my attraction to Dick Van Dyke was a logical path for me because I loved the kind of things that he loved. Mm. But I, I was very young when I became a huge fan of the show. And I remember thinking as a kid, I want to work with him someday in some form. And I, you know, eventually became, I hope I could write for him someday. Mm. Uh, but you know, when you get to a certain point, you get to a certain age and no matter what's happened to you, you sort of let that, your childhood dreams kind of float away. Mm. And by the time, by the mid eighties, whatever. And uh, I had already worked for, Letterman, I did the, I guess it was, no, I guess it would have been the 90s at this point. In the 90s, I uh, had written for both uh, the other things I'd written for. And at that point, Dick Van Dyke was doing the mystery show that he did, the the, the um, medical comedy yeah. mystery. And uh, and I knew I was going to be writing for that. You know, so I said, well, you know, some dreams don't come true. Uh, the My partner at the time, that at that particular time, was Hillary Rollins, who I had met and worked with on the Mou Mickey Mouse Club. Mm -hmm. And uh, she had written for work with Nick and Night People. She had, before she came to Disney, and they knew her there. And at that time, Dick was was working as the so-called chairman of of Nick and Night, which mm -hmm. basically was him doing introducing shows and doing spots for the network. And they were they wanted to do an evening of the called Chairman's Choice, which was going to be Dick's own personal five favorite episodes mm -hmm. of the Dick Van Dyke Show, and they wanted somebody to write those introductions that would who had a feeling for that show and for that and they asked Hillary to do it and lucky me that Hillary was working with me at the time and in fact it originally started as a series of, it was going to be commercial spots and I remember Hillary called me and saying, well Nick and I was asked me to do some commercials for them would you like to work on them with me she's very smart Hillary she paced this very well and she said yeah and I said well you know I don't know we've done all these shows at this point, do we really want to be doing commercials at this point? I, and it's just, so they, they, they got to feature Dick Van Dyke and said, what time do you want me? <laughs> so that became, it actually turned into an actual show rather than a series of commercials. Uh -huh. uh, it was amazing. Yeah. You know, he, he is, the, he is exactly the person you would imagine him to be mm -hmm. and would want him to be. He was yeah. incredibly nice, very open, very easy to talk to, very easy to work with. You know, he could have easily, and I actually said to him, if you want me to go away, just say it, I will go. Because okay. basically I was following around like a puppy dog. Yeah. Because, you know, when you get your childhood, the chance to, to fulfill your childhood dreams, you basically become 10 years old again, yeah. or eight years old or whatever. 
Um, so I did get that experience and it was wonderful. Yeah. You know, it was, uh, just a, a great experience. I, I can't say I learned anything from the experience other than, uh, sometimes your dreams come true and, it, and it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, you know, writing for Dick was just going to be like writing. We, what we always dreamed we would be able to write for Dick. And you know, the thing we want to do with that is because most of the things they had done with him before had been pretty straight. I said, well, you know, you've got a great comedian there. Let's try to write something funny for him. Yeah. So he tried to write something funny for him. How well was succeeded is up for grabs, but that's uh -huh. what we were trying to do. Did his favorite episodes match up to yours? Yes. And some of them, yes. Some of them, no. Uh -huh. it, it's interesting. A lot, most people, in most people's list of favorite episodes, they usually talk coast to coast big mouth, which is the one where Laura says that that uh, Alan Brady is bald and and that creates huge problems. And then it, she has to go in front of of Alan Brady, Paul Reiner, uh -huh. and 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 he has that great scene with her. And he didn't pick that episode. And I thought, well, I I'm sort of thinking about this, and this is just a guess. I don't want to speak for for Dick Van Dyke. God knows. I thought, well, you know, it's really it's really Mary's episode, Mary Tyler Moore's episode. It's uh -huh. really her episode. And, and I think in Dick's mind, I think he, his first instinct is to go for the ones in which he felt he was really able to do what he did best. Right. Um, this is a natural, I don't think there's anything, it's not an ego thing. I think it's just a natural thing. Yeah. So, but some of the others were, yeah. I mean, I would have probably put the one that I, that first one that I saw is still one of my favorites, but, uh, and I don't, I don't think it was on that list. I can't even remember the list anymore. It's been so long. I don't think it was one of those. Yeah. But uh, everybody has different lists. The great thing about the Dick Van Dyke show is there are so many so many great shows oh yeah that you know you take if you reached in and took five and just threw them up there you're likely to get five great episodes yeah it was so ahead of its time and i don't know i i don't know how it was able to catch on it was so far ahead one of the one of my pet peeves about television is in the dialogue it always just feels like people are taking turns talking and mm -hmm. that was never the case on the dick van dyke show because you know um they would talk over each other. There were, it, it was, it was real acting and it was real dialogue. And for some reason, even as a kid that stuck with me. And Ooh. now when I watch shows that are, um, just more, you, you can just tell folks are just saying their lines and well, there's, there's no emotion behind it. It really, it really bugs me. And I, I tune out like right away. Yeah. I don't, I don't like comedy shows where I actually hear the punchlines, you know, this where, where I can feel the machinery grinding. Oh yeah. You know I mean? Yeah. Uh, but, but, and the thing, one of the, I mean, I'll, I spend the whole hour talking about the Dick Van Dyke show too, and probably shouldn't, but <laughs> I, I, you know, Carl Reiner always said the difference between ours. One of the ways you can mark the difference between our shows and other shows is that people would come in Monday mornings on, on, and they would have their, you know, their boardroom, you know, their meeting room. And they would say, what, and the producer would say, what have you got for me this week? Mm -hmm. And Carl Reiner said, we would come in on Monday and I would say to the, the writers, what happened to you this weekend? Uh. So a lot of the episodes of that show came from real things, mm -hmm. even the ones that seem outrageous. You know, the, the, you know that Richie's being chased around the, the, the garden by a, a, uh, by a woodpecker. Uh -huh. That happened apparently to Rob Reiner. You know, it was, it was being chased when he was a kid by a, by a woodpecker. And Carl Reiner saw that and said, oh, we got an episode here. Uh -huh. You know, so that, that, was, that was the way they worked. What a genius making Richie a little prick, you know? <laughs> was, that's not fair to Richie. I worked with Larry. He was on our show. He's a very nice, he was on that show. He's a very nice man. He wasn't a little prick. He was just a real little kid. Yeah. He didn't talk in, in punchlines. He didn't talk in that's gags. Right. Yeah. He talked when kids talk. It now, was natural. To be, fair, to be fair, Leave it to Beaver kids did not talk in punchlines either. So he wasn't the first one either yeah, to do that. Yeah. 
but but uh, <laughs> he definitely, but no, Richard did not talk. It was not a little prick. That's not a nice. Yeah, thing it was. You know, it was one of the first first shows that showed a child as a child versus a child. the the right. wind up doll that's uh, mm -hmm. acting like a child. Absolutely. Yeah. Let's talk. Let's talk about Robert Klein because mm -hmm. uh, so he he pretty much stole you from Letterman, right? No, we'd already been out. We'd been away for, from the show for, for some time. Okay. What happened was we, we had been, we'd, uh, we'd left the show and uh, we're looking around and, uh, you know, it's tough if we don't go to California. We didn't, neither of us really want to live in California. There wasn't, yeah. and so not that much in New York, but uh, Robert was going to do these remote pieces for the Bloopers and Bad Practical Joke show. And he called Barry Sand, who we had known for ages. Mm -hmm. And he asked Barry, he said, look, I'm looking for some writers who might be right for me to work on this project. And Barry said, I got the guys for you. And he gave them our names. And uh, again, personality difference, you know, with the Dave you talk to occasionally in the hallway. But in the case of Robert Klein, Robert, picked, you know, I, I literally picked the phone one day and, and I had Robert Klein on the other end. Uh -huh. And uh, he said, we, I'd like you to come to work for me. And we said, I said, haba, haba, hamada, hamada. And I said, sure. <laughs> yeah, sure. Uh, you know, fine. Love to, you know, and I told him what a fan I was. And, you know, we came to his, because we were doing that. This show was very out of the back of a van, the show, what we were doing, because there was no studio. It was, you know, we were doing remote pieces. We did them out of, we would meet in Robert's. He had an apartment on, on uh, Fifth Avenue in those days. We would meet in Robert's house to put the thing together, talk about it. And then we would go out with the remote crew and shoot it. Uh, we never saw the inside of a studio at that time. We were doing that. We did later when we did the talk show. Mm -hmm. um, but we, that's how we did it. There was just Robert and Carl and me. And uh, each each week or whatever, we'd get together, try to come up with an idea. And we would we really would work on them together. We would put together loose scripts. So we would put the scripts together. But but Robert was very much a part of it. Mm. Uh, you know, we would do the typing later. And he but but he was always very much involved. So mm. it was very much his voice. And, uh, and then we did that. And then later on, when he had the talk show, he called us back to work from on that. The talk show, great one, of, one of the things I, you know, I watched uh, a, a few of the interviews that are up on YouTube. I watched uh, Jerry Seinfeld and I watched uh, Gil. Um, the Seinfeld interview really stuck with me because uh, it's the only time I've ever seen Jerry, um, I guess, showing reverence uh, for someone else. Um, and actually being like that little kid that's meeting his hero. Um, and I'm mm -hmm. sure they talked a little bit, but you know, it, you see Jerry on any other show, um, and he doesn't do that many talk shows, but you see him on any other show and even his show, he is, um, always, it always seems like he is either higher in stature or equal to who he's talking to. Whereas with, uh, Robert, it seemed like, he was actually a little starstruck sitting there with him. Well, I, I, that one, I can almost give you a little background on because I, I didn't know Jerry well, but I knew him a little bit because my, my Carl was trying to also be a stand-up comedian around the time that, that uh, we were working together. Uh -huh. and, uh, and, he, and Carl would work at, at, uh, at the comic strip, which is two blocks from where I live, still live. Um, and uh, so I would go down to see Carl there. And I, then Jerry was sort of the big guy there at that time. He was really breaking then at that mm -hmm. time. But he also would, you know, Jerry would also occasionally do the mic open, you know, the mic nights, the first night when Carl would be working out stuff. So, I, I you know, I met Jerry to say hello to. Uh, and I, and when Robert first called us, called us, actually, I, I don't remember why Carl wasn't there. I guess he couldn't make it. But Robert said, I'm, go, I'm doing Caroline's. I'm with Caroline's night. Come and visit. You know, I'll, I'll have a table for you. Come and we'll talk after the show. So I went down there and, and Jerry was at the table with us. Mm -hmm. He had been 
even put at the table with. So I got to talk a little bit and, you know, we talked about Robert and Jerry said point blank that, you know, Robert was his uh, one, one of certainly one of his top comedy heroes, maybe his very top comedy hero. Mm -hmm. And you can see it in his work and, and in a good way. It's never stole yes. anything. Mm -hmm. right? But the influence of that observational style that Robert, you know, pioneered to a large degree, you certainly see that in Jerry's work. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and uh, I think Jerry was the next step. I think it was just Robert and Jerry. But what, what makes me sad now is there are a lot of young comedians who I think don't know Robert's work. And some of them do observational comedy, and they may think at the back of their minds, well, maybe I'm sort of, maybe a little bit like Jerry Seinfeld, but they don't even know the line that got to Jerry that got to them. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. That makes me sad. You know, I really wish more people knew Robert's stuff, and there, you know, it's out there. You can yeah. still find it. There's, you get a box set of his HBO specials. You can get his records. You can yes. get, you know, you can go on YouTube. There's a little bit on YouTube. He's pretty good about keeping his stuff, the copyrighted stuff off of YouTube, but there's a little bit there. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, you know, that makes me sad, but I, I hope people can reacquaint themselves with Robert. Yeah. I want to, I want to make you a little bit happy because I, I've talked to, I, somewhere around 140 stand-up comedians during the run of this. And a lot of them do the homework, <laughs> uh, yes. especially the ones who do well. Um, and, you know, I talked. I talked to this, I think it was like 22 when I talked to him, this kid from um, Chicago, and he knew everything about Robert Klein. He knew Moms Mabley. Wow. He, you know, he knew, he, he knew everything back, and he was a, a voracious watcher of them and understanding the craft and understanding what worked then that could possibly work now. So a lot of them mm -hmm. actually do. Now, a lot, of them, a lot of them you see on stage, maybe not. Um, but a lot, a lot of them that I look up, um, I see some meat on the bone there and, um, mm -hmm. uh, I don't have just anybody on the show. <laughs> I, I, I have the ones Until that I, today. yeah, I have, I have the ones that I think are, um, actually a true student of the craft. And, uh, mm -hmm. I, I tell you a lot of them actually will list Robert Klein as one of their major That's influences That's and, really they're, good to know. and they're 25 years old and That's you know, great. yeah, yeah. So there's always those people out there. I mean, you know, I, as an old comedy buff, I remember, well, now it's, he's not that young anymore, but when, but with the early days of the internet, somebody started a Charlie Chase fan page, the great Hal Roach comedian, Charlie uh -huh. Chase. It was like an 18 year old kid. Yeah. And that made me really happy. You know, it was yeah. like that, that, that to, you know, a lot, a lot of us are made very happy by that. So yeah, the people do find them in the same way that, you know, when I was a kid, we used to trade radio shows on reel to reel tape with each other. You mm -hmm. know, we listened to Jack Benny and Fred Allen, Edgar Bergen and, you know, whatever. And that was already, you know, 20 years before for our time. So, yeah, there are always some. And that's that's good. And they, they will always find that. Yeah. These yeah. And uh, yeah, I think there's 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 more than you think. And yeah, it's uh, it, it makes me feel good because, mm -hmm. uh, you know, those are the ones that I grew up with, too. And and, you know, they they form my sensibilities. Yeah. Now, when you were working with Robert on the talk show what i mean what was your duty there were, were you working on monologue but were you also that's a, good, that's a really really good question uh -huh. because the the because we when we first came to work on that show uh our original producer the late joe cates uh was death death against doing comedy sketches in the show and things uh -huh. like that with comedy bits so i'm not sure why we were there <laughs> to a certain extent, we were there, you know, if we could come up with something that we that would help the show or if we could give Robert something. We certainly didn't work, you know, by and large, we didn't work on the monologues. We might give him a joke here and there to, uh -huh. you know, uh, we might give him an you know, ad lib as one does occasionally to, to do on 
we'll be one of the guests or something. But uh, you know, I think we were almost like more like comedy advisors on the show. I mean, we would we would sit in the edit room with him, you know, and go over the when he was editing the show and see and and. But I think he liked having us there because we knew what we were doing. We kept fighting to get more comedy bits on the show. Ironically, when Joe left the show and another producer came on, uh, the problem was they could no longer afford to have union writers on the show anymore. So they hired some two young writers who at that point had not gotten their, their first union gig. So they were able to work there. And then they had sketches on the show. <laughs> so it was like, it was very frustrating because, well, oh, we didn't get a chance to do our sketches. Uh, but it was, it was, it was still fun because, and I, we did have an impact on the show. Yeah. And every now, every now and then we could, we could, have, I would suggest guests or Carl would suggest guests. I, for example, I saw that, uh, that they were going to do an anniversary of their play Dead End. They were doing a Lincoln Center and the play Dead End became the movie Dead End, eventually became the Dead End Kids, which became the Bowery Boys. And I knew that that was something that Robert connected. Mm. So I so said, we've got to get Hunts Hall and Gabe Dell are coming to town. And oh, I said, we, wow. yeah, I said, Let's get them on the show. And I knew that Robert was going to fall in love with us. So we, I came in the next day and Robert said immediately, fantastic. He said, I'll get my head. I'll go out and do like, like Hunt's Hall. I'll do the thing. And I'll be in it. And Joe, Joe was like dead set against it. And we had to literally, Robert had to say, no, I want these guys on the show. Uh -huh. He's, okay, Joe said, well, who's going to know who they are? Nobody says, I know who they are. And Robert said, you know, it made him happy. I think a part of the show of doing a show with the is they should be happy with what they're doing oh, yeah. so robert did we did get them on the show we only got one segment but it came came off really well i remember also carl and i had the idea to do a, a segment about mad magazine mm -hmm. and we got you know dick DiBartolo and uh and uh, a couple other guys from the show on from the magazine on the show you know anything like that robert was in heaven and i think it benefited the show so that's a i guess that's a form of writing in this yeah. case because we were creating a segment uh but it was an odd experience that show for a lot of reasons and it's a long, long story that I'm not going to tell you here, but it, it, it was, it was tricky. Yeah. It yes. was tricky. But well, it was great with the, yeah, it was never a problem with Robert. We had some problems with Joe, but never had a problem. With yeah. Yeah. Working, working for a network. I can see that. Um, getting into the Mickey Mouse Club. So mm -hmm. let, let's talk about that because you, you spent four years on that, right? Well, uh, four seasons, three years. Four, se but, yeah, uh, four okay. seasons. Yeah. Yeah, talk talk about that and how it differed from your uh, writing experience up until then, and what well, you gained from it. I think I, I I've told I now told the story of how how we got the job on four different podcasts. So I'll skip that now. Anybody <laughs> wants to hear that story, go to the to to the to Mike Chisholm's podcast. Yeah, but once we got to the show, um, you know, it was tricky. We I mean we we actually asked our agent if we could get it, get ourselves an out after thirteen weeks, so we could leave if we wanted to. And she said, no, they won't take that. So, okay, well, we'll go for the first season. Maybe we can always make ourselves so unpleasant that they'd want to get rid of us. It was un unpleasant. <laughs> but it turned out to be a really wonderful experience. Uh, it didn't turn out to be that Disney thing. The Disney people were the executives. They were on the outside, but all of us on the inside. And a lot of this, I think, had to do with Alan Silverberg, who was the head writer, who chose writers very well. And it was mm -hmm. a, he had a good eye, and he also knew what he wanted. Mm -hmm. And we were more in tune with what he wanted, which, was a good, which meant that all of us on that show were in the same vein of what we want to do and there were two things that alan said to me later on he said that uh you know i said to alan at one point said, you know it's so great that we all really like each other on the show because that's not always the way on a show like this you know there were two things i wanted when i was hiring a staff i wanted a really good writers and b people who get along with each other now that's a novelty mm -hmm. not every head writer is going to do that um and I, it paid off in this case and we all of us for example this was not the way it was in Letterman, but you know it, it worked for Letterman. But on, on the Mouse Club, we all worked with each other. We worked in different combinations. Every writer on the floor, at one point or another, worked, you know, with a 
not only with who they originally worked with, they worked on their own, they worked with the other, other writers in turn, or three writers might write a sketch together. It could be anything. Mm -hmm. And I found as a writer, for me, it was really interesting because I would find that when I was writing with a different writer, my writing changed, would change a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, we would find like a midway ground between our two styles and we'd create a third thing that was not the same as the two things on their own mm-hmm. or the same thing as what Carl and I did. And uh, I think that benefited the show. It certainly benefited me as a writer. It made me feel more confident. You know, eventually I would go on to write a bit on my own and also to write with Hillary and write in other combinations. I had only worked with Carl up to that point. And to find that I could do this and feel comfortable, uh, that was good for me. I learned a lot from that. Mm-hmm. I learned about what my, that I had more might have more chance to do other kinds of things than I had done before. And that was very useful for me mentally, you mm. know, to keep in, in that field. Um, if your next question is writing for kids, which is usually what the next question is in these situations, uh, the answer to that was, well, I mean, it is sort of is, isn't it, right? Because, I mean, if you, if you write adult stuff, they say, what's it like to work for kids? <laughs> I never I never wanted to write for kids. That's why I didn't want this job. I had no interest in it. I still don't have any interest in it. I, you know, they asked me in the, in the, in the, one of the meetings, you know, one of the, uh, job interviews that we had they asked well how would you write for kids and i said you know so you, you only written for us i would write for kids i said i we, i said we wouldn't we'd write for adults and we cut out the stuff the kids didn't understand mm-hmm. and in point of fact i don't think we even i tried we tried not to even cut out the stuff the kids wouldn't understand mm-hmm. the thing was if you write comedy and you're not writing to be funny period you're not doing your job properly yeah you know if you're writing down because you're writing for kids you're not doing your job you know, go back and look at the Rocky and Bullwinkle cartoons. It's full of jokes for that. You know, kids and adults watch that together because there were jokes that kids wouldn't get and there were jokes the adults got. And the jokes that the kids got were funny for the adults too because yeah. it's just funny. Funny is funny. Yeah. And we tried to do that on the show. We tried to write. You know, my, my men- mentality was if you're writing for a sketch comedy show, which is what this was, this was a sketch show. The Letterman show was not was not a sketch show. Mm. Uh, neither was the Robert Klein show. But this was a sketch show. This has more to do with like the Calvin show they did with the Letterman show mm. because there were sketches. And so if you're writing for if you're writing a sketch show and your cast members are children, what do you write? So for us, it was like, you know, it's simple. You write about you dig into your memories. You write about your childhood. You write about, you know, school life. What was you know, what do you what was funny when you were a kid? You write for home. You're, you know, try you know, work with being with your parents. You write with what that comes from. And you still do the parodies. We did movie parodies on our show. We did everything that we would have done on, you know, if it was for the Cabernet show mm-hmm. you know, or, or, or any of the other variety shows that existed. We didn't really try. We did never try tried to write down. We just tried to write as funny as we could. Luckily, our kids were so talented and so funny that we could write anything, and they they could grab and they could run with it. You, um, one. I think one of the things we do as adults is we uh, we sell kids short. Uh, they're they're a lot smarter than you think they are. Yeah. Well, I that was our problem. That's what we learned so fast. Carl and I both said, you know, I I know they're going to be adults. I host on the show, but how do you write for kids and assume that they're going to be able to get the jokes across? How are they going to process this and then give it back to you? They were so damn good. Yeah. I mean, you know, some of them were, were great out of the gate. Some of them learned on, on the job, but by the second season, they all could do it. They all could you. there's nothing you could write that they couldn't pitch, you know, and they could do it just as well as any adult comedy star. And you, you, you learned from them at a certain point, you learned that there was nothing you could toss them that they couldn't handle. Uh-huh. They were just as good actors as any other comedy actor. It was just a, just you're just running for pros. That's all. Mm-hmm. First rate comedy minds. Yeah, it's all the same. When you um, think about everything you've written and everything that got shot down, uh, <laughs> is there any bits or any 
jokes, any sketches that you think would have been just fantastic, but they got shot down and they never saw the light of day that you go to bed thinking, God damn it. I wish that thing would have gone on there. Not so much on Letterman. The, the, the mouse club turned weird in the fourth season because the show changed a lot and, and the, suddenly the, the, the show had become a big hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and when, it becomes, when a show becomes a big hit, the executives get terrified that you're going to do something to ruin it, even yeah. though you're the ones who've made it a hit in right. the first place. Yeah. That don't mean me. I mean all of us, yeah. right? All of us knew what we were doing. And they, more, they didn't leave us alone, but they gave us a certain amount of rope in the first couple of seasons uh-huh. because that way if the show flopped, then they'd be able to blame us. So they gave us enough rope. But by the fourth season, they were, they were, going, they were doing everything to drive us crazy, and they, it became impossible. And the entire... All the writers but one, the, all the production people, the only people who left at the end of the fourth season, they got a whole new bunch of people to write and produce the show after that. Mm-hmm. We just, we didn't want to be there anymore. And there were some sketches. We, they killed a lot of great sketches. We wrote a sketch. Um, we had, they loved, they actually did like us to parody the Disney characters. Mm-hmm. They really did. And we had, we had established some of them in the past, some of the, you know, some of the dwarves and things like that. And I remember watching the Regis and Kathy Lee show and saying, well, Regis is basically grumpy of, of Snow White, right? It's the same thing. He would come on and just complain about stuff. So I thought we should do like live with, with Grumpy and Kathy Lee. So we wrote a sketch that was the premise was Grumpy and, and Kathy Lee. It was me. I wrote it with, uh, with I think, with Hillary and, and, uh, and a writer named Glenn Rabley. And, and it was really funny. Uh-huh. And they, they I mean, I, I don't say that at all, but this was a good sketch. And they actually originally had told us to go ahead and do it. They had okayed it. So after we wrote it, they said to us, but, but you know, Disney, ABC is owned by Disney. And what if Regis Philbin doesn't like this and he gets mad? Well, first of all, if you ever watched his show, he loved it when they, people made fun of him because then he would then he would complain about it. Oh, yeah. a joke. Yeah. So I knew that we all knew that if we did this sketch on the air, not only would he, would he love it, but he would complain about it. He may run a clip on the air and would do us nothing but good. Yeah. But they were so terrified they killed it before we could shoot it. And there were a number of things that I foresee that were like that, but that was the one that really ached me because it was really good. Uh-huh. It was a very good sketch. We had uh, one of our Mouseketeers, Mark, Mark Worden, was, who had played Grumpy before, and I just knew he was going to knock it out of the park. Uh-huh. And we didn't get to, and, and also uh, Lindsay Alley, who, who was very good at playing the kind of plastic people that, uh, that, uh, that uh, I, I won't say, you know, the real person, but, you know, the original person was yeah. a little bit on the plastic side. <laughs> and it would have been very funny. It just, it just that that one yeah that one irks me yeah I mean there, there were gags that we wrote for Letterman that I can't even remember anymore that, that I, I wish we had been able we had gotten but that's always the case mm-hmm. you know and sometimes not the ones you don't don't love are the ones to get on the air and sometimes are the ones people remember yeah yeah okay let's say I'm um, 22 years old and I want to be a comedy writer what books would you recommend that I read what would you recommend I watch what would what would you recommend in general for somebody it's, who wants to be a comedy writer so, now it's so different now than it was when we were all when i was starting where other people they always say that mm-hmm. you know i'm sure they when i when i was starting the, the i'm sure the Caesar writers said well it's so different we were, but it really was because now with between uh youtube and tiktok and you know everything else there are people out there who are constantly trying to be funny mm-hmm. all over the place yeah if you want to be funny get a try to track you know when we made the film we made our film it was not easy to make a short film and it was not that easy to get it seen so i wouldn't i don't i don't think i would tell people to watch to so much as to read books or stuff but you know expose yourself to everything that's out there and then try to figure out what's funny to you mm-hmm. and then try to do it then then try to wipe it out all out of your head mm-hmm. you won't you won't wipe it all out of your head it's still in the back of your head 
But just say to yourself, what's, what do I think is funny? And try to be funny. And I don't know, I don't even know where to go right now to, to, be, to catch attention. Because the trick about becoming a com- anything in comedy is you've got to snag somebody's attention. Yeah. And I've always said the problem with, with that is that the people who are in the business, when they're trying to hire people, they're not really looking to see, they're not looking to see, why should I hire this person? They're really trying to look to you the first to say, why should I not hire this person? Yeah. And it's not because they don't, they're not, they don't want to give you a chance. It's because like 600 people for every gig. Yeah. You know? Oh, yeah. So it's really, they, somebody has to really bounce above. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and everybody gets in on a different path. So I never know what to say to people. And I always think it's kind of hard. I think, make, I always say, make yourself undeniable. You know, but mm-hmm. that's so hard. And I think it's probably harder now than ever. Yeah. Because I look, I see stuff on, on, on YouTube or TikTok that, that makes me laugh. And I don't know why, why these people ne- are ne- not necessarily on a TV show or they are. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just, it's tough. I, I can't even post a joke. I, I wouldn't even know if I were writing on a show now how to do it. You'd have to cut yourself off from social media. Because sometimes I'll try, I'm going to write a joke on Facebook. But before I post a joke on Facebook, I want to see if anybody has done it first or yeah. some version <laughs> of it. I and do the same nine thing. Nine out of ten times, it's there's been a version of it by somebody, yeah, either a professional or a, somebody who's just funny, yeah, yeah. So it's tough. Yeah. It's tough. The problem, and I, and, I wish there'd be more help. Yeah, and I don't want to sound like a old guy railing on uh, new stuff, but a lot of the TikTok, YouTube people, they are a mile wide and an inch deep. So they that I don't know because you, you pay more attention to it than I do. Yeah, but you know, you look at somebody like you know when when Sarah Cooper was her name, I think, who did the the, the Trump pieces with the voice. We do the, oh yeah, yeah. When she sort of bounced out of the thing and people started knowing her, she was doing it on her own. And I looked at that stuff, this stuff is freaking brilliant. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I know she's doing other things now. I know what the, you know, the next thing, we'll sort of see what, what she can move beyond that. Yeah. But, you know, somebody could do that now. And that was, that's, I guess, a version of sort of what we did with our movie. But she was able to do it in her house, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. with a camera, with, yeah. with, with a phone. Right. And yeah. uh, you shouldn't have to raise the money. And that's great. But it also means that everybody else is doing it too. Right. 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 There are a million people who want to be Sarah Cooper out there. Yeah. And I think I think a little bit of it is that uh, you, you get your shtick, the, the thing that makes you popular, the, the thing that gets people's attention and you just hang on it for too long. It's just it's just like TV. I mean, it, it's a kind of a jump the shark type thing, except for you don't grow and your comedy right. doesn't grow with you. I mean, when you look at Robert Klein's first special versus mm-hmm. his last special, that's a different comedian. Yeah. And it's because he learned and he grew. Well, but but I, to be fair, because everything is a case-by-case basis, very often the people who put, make the shows don't want you to do anything new. Yeah. If they've hired you for something, yeah, that's what they're paying you for. And they say, but yeah, but I want to try to do this and this and this. And then you don't get that option. Yeah. So I, I don't necessarily think that people are necessarily clinging to their bits. I think most people who create comedy really want to do a broad spectrum. Mm-hmm. They want to do all kinds of things. You know, if in the, I don't know if this is still true, but it used to be true that if you got on a variety show first, the way we did, like Letterman show, you couldn't get on a sitcom. Yeah. Because they saw you as talk show writers. Yeah. Comedy, you know, that kind of show. Right. But if you if I if our first break had been on a sitcom, I don't know if they'd have seen us for Letterman. Yeah. Interesting. We weren't trying particularly to get on a variety show. Yeah. That's just happened to be the one we got on. Yeah. It's funny. You mentioned Sanford and Son, and uh, Red mm-hmm. Fox was such a multi-dimensional character and one of the most interesting 
monologist, monologist, whatever, um, um, one of the best. And, you know, he was, Sanford and Son was great, but he was reduced to quite a two-dimensional character in that show. Um, I mean, very little did you get to see any depth there. Well, I didn't see, I haven't seen a lot of interviews with him. So I'm speaking out of what I might think might have been going on in his head and maybe totally wrong. Mm-hmm. But you know, he'd been in the business already for about 30 years, probably at that point. Mm-hmm. And now he was a TV, a huge TV star. I, I think he was probably okay with it. Yeah. yeah. He may have wanted to, expand, you know what I mean? I mean, he may, I mean, he may have wanted to expand, do other things he may not have gotten a chance to do. Yeah. But you know what? When you've been beating at the beating away at it, like he had been for so, and he always had a hard time because he couldn't do his material on television. Though. Yeah, yeah. You know, he was doing the the so what they used to call party records, which was the blue material yep. that he did. Mm-hmm. That's what he made his name on. But they wouldn't have you on TV if that's what you were doing in yep. those days. So for him to break through at that point in his life, I I bet it was a, a wonderful thing. Yeah. But that's me. Yeah. Going into yeah. his head, which is yeah. not fair. Yeah, it's just it's it's interesting to see to me that these people who were so great. There there's a show on right now that. Uh, I, I think is doing the same thing to another comedian that is also very good. Um, and it's just, it, for me, it's just kind of sad. Uh, and you, you don't get to see the full person. However, I know that they're doing what they need to do to make a buck. And here's the, here's the bottom line. The comedy is a business like everything else. Yeah. And you know, the degree to which you get to do your zone, you know, to do the things you really want to do are subject to so many. Yeah. I mean, I really felt I was very lucky because I felt that Letterman was in my wheelhouse. It was mm-hmm. something that I loved anyway. It's not everything that I was able to do, but it was something I could do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the other stuff that I've done have been other facets of what I've done. And, you know, I didn't get to do everything I wanted to do. I would have loved to have had to have a show of my own, that I could, a show run that I could create on my own do. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what that would have been like, but it would have been different probably. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, I can't complain. I've had a wonderful time in the business. I had no, you know, the, whatever bad experience I've had, and I've had a few, were never about, me or about me, my work was, you know, that something else would be in the mix. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I can't complain. I, I, and I like the people I work with. I like David. I like Merrill. I really like Robert Klein. You know, I still think of him as a friend. Mm-hmm. Uh, I like, I like most of the people I've worked, the people on the Disney show, the kids on that show are all in their mid forties now, which is terrifying. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I talk to them and see a lot of them still all these, you know, after all these years. Yeah. So, you know, I've had some incredible experiences. I always said I had the best experiences and the worst experiences in my life on television. Yeah. And they were usually on the same show. Yeah. <laughs> which, gives you, which gives you an idea what this business is like. Yeah. Yeah. And that is true, but it, it usually was not about the people. It's usually about people. Uh, if they were bad, it was not about the people I started uh-huh. the experience with. You know what I mean? It was something would change on the experience and they would, something external would change the factor, which would have made it rough. Right. But, you know, I can't, I cannot complain. The first, my first TV gig was on one of the best shows in television history, I think, mm-hmm. the Letterman show. And to have been a part of the creation of that show and have an input on it, you know, even if it's dumb a thing as, you know, the pencil through the window thing, you know, which is which was one of my dumb jokes and became part of the, sh- the show. You know, yeah. Calvert, you know, who became a TV star, which is beyond, would have been beyond comprehension. Oh, yeah. Although it was sort of the joke for us was that Kubi make this guy a star. And he did, Yeah, you know? Yeah, and you did it very well. The... <laughs> The lead-in for the um, uh, the show that uh, you and Carl did, uh, where you're doing the Vespucci uh, mm-hmm. films, is the Melman bus lines. And well, that was see, that was Merrill's thing. That that's Mar- was, that, that. I that was just beautiful. We did, we did, we wrote the uh, Merrill. Merrill created the idea. She she created the name Larry Butt Melman. That was Merrill's. Uh-huh. And the first Melman bus line ads were hers. 
But then we started doing, they want to do them with Calvert. And we, we wrote all the ones that Calvert is in. Uh-huh. Uh, she'd written the ones before that. But, you know, it's, this is this thing coming together. Because, you know, what, what they said to us at that job meeting is we're looking for somebody like the guy in your movie for our show. And we just said, well, you want him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's the guy. Yeah. If I, need uh, to, if I wanted to find your proudest moment and put this in your eulogy... <laughs> What what, which, what what time do you expect that to be delivered? Um, you know, I mean, just in case. I mean, maybe you know something I don't know. Yeah. I, that, well, doctor, I spoke to my doctor. He said I was okay. So yeah, yeah. Ne- neither one you know, of us, neither one of us, are on the uh, um, uh, first half of our lives. But uh, um, <laughs> what would you say your proudest been, moment is? I've had several of them. You know, and they usually are that first moment. It wasn't even necessarily being something on the show. It was that moment of getting getting the gig. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I've had some incredible experiences like that. And some of them were had nothing to do with that. I mean, I mentioned Chuck Jones earlier. I got to know Chuck Jones because I had, I sort of wrote him a fan letter, and he and I had written my senior the- college thesis on him, and he he called me out of the blue one day after. You know, I had written to him, and he asked for the thesis. I sent him. He called me one day mm-hmm. and said he's going to be in New York. He would like to see me. That phone call was was an incredible experience for me. Uh, the, 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 nothing better that, than, than, uh, you know, when I, I, I don't think I told this story before, but when we were, we were got the, when we first met with David and Merrill, we couldn't get anybody to tell us whether, whether they'd made a decision yet. There was a month between the time we did the interview and the time we got the show. Mm-hmm. One week before we reported to work, I got a phone call from an NBC lawyer and he started reading the contract to me over this day. I opened the phone, I this, this so and so this, and this is your contract with, for, for the late night with David Letterman. And I had to stop him about a paragraph in it. I said, hold it. I got to stop for one second. Are you telling, you're telling me I got the job, right? Said, yeah, you got the job. And I said, okay, go ahead. And then you read the rest of the contract. So yeah, that was a big moment. You know, it's that feeling of, of that, you know, by the time we got that job, I was already, well, what year was that? 1981, fall 81. So I was like, I just turned 28. So I was not, a, you know, I was already getting up there for TV. Uh-huh. So all the, this door that I had pushed at for so long, you know, literally, I literally went to push it again, and it was open, and I uh-huh. just fell through. So, yeah, that was a big moment. And the Robert Klein thing was incredible because I had been a fan of his since day one. And to have Robert say, I want to work with you guys, it was amazing. Yeah. So, you know, it's all, it's, it's all been pretty good. You know, I, I really have good memories, yeah. a lot of great experiences. It's, it's rare in TV, but yeah. they're there. Yeah. You know, I really appreciate you doing this. Uh, I've got well, one last fun. question. Uh-oh. Since you're okay. mentioning uh, British sitcoms, mm-hmm. Faulty Towers. Well, the best. And the genius of one of the genius things about John Cleese is we're making this many and no more. Yeah. He yeah. said, you know, if we had to do this all the time, it's going to get bad. Mm-hmm. He said, nope, not going to do it. Yeah. And he had to clout in those days to make that happen. Yeah. But yeah, that's incredible. Sure. I really appreciate you doing this. I, I oh, when I listened fun. to you talk to Mike, there were so there were so many things going through my head and I was, I, I, I took notes for your interview. I was sitting here at my desk when I was listening <laughs> and I took notes and I'm like, I need to know this. I need to know this. I need to know that. And, uh, and, and his, you know, his show is so, um, Letterman focused, obviously, but yeah, I saw, I saw a lot more to you because you. Letterman was a time in your life. And I wanted, I wanted to, uh, Explore well, we talk some about some of the other, other stuff, stuff Mike too. Yeah. We talked about the other shows, Mike too. And, I, and Mike was, is a really good guy, and it was a great. That was oh, he's the best. Too. He's the best. I, I yeah. had him on my show because uh-huh. I I 
um, discovered his podcast by accident, and I fell in love with it immediately. And because I'm a I'm an old Letterman fan from the morning show, and mm -hmm. my, my 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 mom used to say, "Oh, stop acting like that, David Letterman." So it, <laughs> it's not bad advice, actually. Yeah, right? I know. <laughs> For, you know, in your daily life, it's yes. not bad advice. You know, I, I can't say, you know, I mean, for Dave, it worked for Dave, yeah. but, you know, he's not the same guy off stage, and for good, there's probably good reason for that. Yeah, so. yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Stephen. It's You're been great getting to know you. That was great fun. I enjoyed it.